brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by American Yogi. In a world increasingly driven toward the grind, find your outlet for peace. American Yogi is a mindfulness-based apparel and wellness brand with international retreats, free classes, and rad clothing and accessories to support you along life's journey. Find American Yogi on Instagram at liveamericanyogi or at americanyogi.com. American Yogi is proud to support the Brass and Unity podcast and its community with the code BRASS15. Join the mindful counterculture. Live American Yogi. And brought to you by Mindful Meds. You guys have been seeing me take Mindful Meds for a little while now. Mindful Meds is a premium supplement company dedicated to supplying humans with the tools to improve their mental health, clarity, and performance, all while supporting their growth along the way. Whether it's the Immunity Blend, Lion's Mane, Inspire, or Voyage, all of their products are clean, tested, consistent, and they've become a huge help in my life. I found Mindful Meds over a year ago now, and I've never looked back. Go check out their website, mindfulmeds.io, and use the code BRASS at checkout. Hey humans, I know you've all been seeing me drink HVMN's Ketone IQ lately. This is a game changer. Jet fuel in a bottle. I use Ketone IQ for everything in my life, whether it's running, cycling, podcasting, or just the extra boost that my brain needs. I won't lie, it helps push me to the next level in all things. I love Ketone IQ and what HVMN stands for. Go grab some shots today at hvmn.com and use the code BRASS20 and save. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting with Kyle Morgan. A lot of you have been hearing about this man. He's the founder of Blue Bearing Solutions as well as a former special operator for over 20 years. Since 9-11, he has been a kinetic operator and he has been someone who has been in the public eye the past little bit with some very intense stories with a lot of lessons learned and really just moving forward and showing the way, leading from the front, as we all say. And I'm really excited to have you on, Kyle, because you and I have started to get to know each other over the past couple of weeks, fortunately, through a mutual friend, Mark Turner, who runs the Overwatch Foundation, which I know you are involved in. And uh, he said to me, hey, Kelsey, you know, uh, I know people don't like to have suggestions, but there's somebody that you should have on the show. There's somebody that you really do need to have a conversation with. And his name is Kyle Morgan. I kind of sat back and went, how do I know this guy? And I'm like, ah, Sean, that's how I know this guy. 
And then I started to listen and dive into your story a little bit. And then I realized that you really do stand out amongst the special operations for a lot of reasons. But mainly, I think, and notably, it would be the Mali attack in 2015. And we'll get into that. But first and foremost, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for your years of sacrifice and service towards keeping people alive and safe. Um, It seems like you have done your part and then some. Well, Kelsey, thank you. I think uh, it, it's uh, it's great to to join you on this platform, on your platform with Brass and Unity, and and all you get you stand for, and what you're doing for our communities. Um, yeah, I think you know, it, I, I just pay attention to who and who I introduce into my life, my life at the at the current juncture, and then moving forward, like what you're feeding your 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 being, you know, and like Mark Turner, for example, he did the same with me and and connected you and I. And I just finished a, a weekend of training for Overwatch Foundation, um, which is why my voice is kind of gone. Not that I was yelling at him, but it was just it's a, it was, we crammed a lot of instruction into a weekend, and it was a really good event. And um, I was completely laid up yesterday, just like licking my wounds because um, I do put my heart and soul into everything that I that I do as far as professionally. And I'm trying to make sure that that, that amount of energy that comes more natural to me goes into the, how I live my life and my personal life. Um, but no, thank you for having me. Of course, you've made some major changes in the past little bit, and you've really stood up and I don't want to say corrected mistakes, but whether we like it or not, the special operations community has an upwards of 94% divorce rate, especially if you're in for a long period of time. And it seems to be the truth when I do start having these conversations with individuals in the community. It is very often a similar a similar start. They serve for X amount of time. They are on X amount of divorces and children are kind of being shared between one another. And more often than not, it gets ugly very quickly. You have a a different way of looking at your family and you have a a different way of moving yourself forward. And it's something I'd like to kind of touch on and really start with instead of going right into the special operations, which I know everybody listening wants to hear all of the stories and how you've grown. But I want to kind of touch on why you are the way you are and how we got to the point where in 2003 you started deploying. So let's start from the beginning. What was your life like as a kid? Because to become a top tier special operator the way you are, you have to be cut from a very different cloth. Well, I mean, I I think that, uh, you know, I I was born in 1984 and best year of uh, this last generation, I think. But uh, (laughs) I think uh, a lot of good things happened in 84, I think, I believe. no, but all kidding aside, like I, I grew up in, you know, I was born in central Florida, but I, there were one, the, the common theme throughout my whole childhood was there was no stability when it came to planting roots anywhere. <clears throat> like, I think I moved from Florida to New York and then New York to Virginia for a while and then back to Florida for all high school. And that's where I, I joined the army from, but, um, the one thing that I can that I know of impacted my ability to to you know uh, 
Well, plant roots, like being, having some stability. And I see this as I've raised my children and, you know, where there are areas that I know I, I failed them or I could have done significantly better. I know that I was able to provide them stability um, in the, in, in the military, which is, I think, huge, which I didn't, I didn't get, um, which uh, I think that is one of the main contributing factors to me never really feeling comfortable for too long in one place. And then I'm like, ah, I got to fuck this up or I got to change it or go do something else. Um, and that's kind of, kind of how my military career was, um, you know, changing from job to job, always looking for more. And, uh, you know, I think looking back at my childhood though, the stability piece is so for any of our children, um, because, you know, one without the stability, they can't ever really, they don't know how much to invest or, or to trust in, in, in the people or in institutions or, you know, uh, you know, recreational like sport teams and all these things. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's one of the things I think stability is, is huge. Uh, and I, I wasn't afforded that, but I will say this because it just reminded me of how I've parented my whole, you know, adult life, you know, trying to figure out, I didn't have a mother or father, uh, to, that I would, to emulate, to say, Hey, this is what a good mother or a good father looks like. So, um, for me, I, I, I looked at my kids sometimes in my past and, and I was just like, well, they don't know how bad it could be. Right. So, and, and that's kind of like, it may, whether I said it inside my head or, or the way that it, it projected, you know, I didn't outright say that to them, but it was very much like, like looking back at it, I'm like, why should they, why should they know how bad it should, it could be? Mm-hmm. Um, that's me still dealing with my own shit. So, you know, look, m- moving forward, I try to try to keep that in, into, pers- into, into perspective whenever I'm doing, like, they don't need to know how bad it could be. My job is to, to, to provide and protect them and, and help develop them. And regardless of how I was raised. So, um, but just to talk about my childhood a little bit, I mean, it, it, you know, the stability wasn't there, the stability from like, they, for whatever reason or another, it's a, it's a misprioritization of, of resources, whatever my, my parents would just like this whole like renaissance thing, you know, like, like we'd have these nice things, but then they would disappear just like cars and, and TVs and this and that. I'm like, what is this? There was no stability with, with uh, internal to the home as well. Oh, wow. you know, not just like moving home to home. What and did your I'm parents like, do? Sorry. What did your parents do for a living? What was their so uh, profession? My, my dad uh, grew up uh, doing construction, like uh, concrete roof tile uh, in Florida. And then he did that up in, in New York and in Virginia for a while. But then so construction, basically. So um, he kind of went to where the, the bigger jobs were. And but then those would go, those would dissipate. And so we would move again or whatever. My mother, the only times I ever remember her working was if we needed like medical insurance for something. Mm. So she would she would work for a period of time to, to to get us like some sort of medical coverage. And then but she, you know, she was very much like 
I think the jobs that she held were just like at, at uh, gas stations or freaking, uh, you know, just minimum, minimum wage jobs. And um, she was like very much a stay at home mother. And you have uh, siblings? Was, yeah, I have a, a sister that we, her and I grew up together. She's older, um, a little bit older than me, but, um, and my brother is my half brother from my father. Mm. So I, <laughs> we didn't grow up together, but him and I have actually reconnected and, you know, we reconnected later on, like before I joined the army. And then recently, like last year, reconnected when I was doing um, TBI treatment out in San Diego. He lives out there. He actually works for the, the uh, sheriff's office now. Nice. So it's, he's, he's really helped me um, like want to believe in family and outside of my family that I've, I've, you know, fostered here, you know, my, my wife and children, you know, it's been very, uh, very, um, very hard to trust any of that. Right. Because regardless of like the, the way I was raised, like I've, I've always wanted to help others and it started with wanting to help them. And it almost in an unhealthy way, almost a codependency that I was raised in. Right. Where my mother was codependent on the children. Um, mm -hmm. and, and my father and my father never left, but I know that I held a lot of, uh, I don't know, angst or resentment towards him growing up because he would just, he would like come home every, every night or whatever, and then go to the garage and tinker, you know, to avoid the, uh, my mother was extremely jealous and, um, and abusive. Like she would verbally and physically, and he would just sit in the garage and drink and, uh, you know, so it really helped. I didn't really get, I wasn't really close with him growing up. So, um, there was a lot I could have learned from him, but I, I viewed him as kind of like, he's just kind of there. Um, can I ask, I can I pry a little bit about that? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious. Cause with your mom, it's, it's worth highlighting a lot of individuals, especially men. And I think, uh, being that my listeners are 86% men, I want to really touch on this. You said something that we don't hear very often or whether people want to have that conversation or not, it happens. Women abusing men is a real, real, real thing. Um, we've, I've seen it before in the community. I've, I've seen individuals who have been married and due to maybe the way that they have been raised or due to the stressors put on within the special operations community and what it means to be married to a special operator that manifests itself in other ways. And, and that can be alcoholism that turns into physical and psychological abuse towards spouses. And that can go both ways. And I think there's this perception that it is that men are always abusing women. Women are just, and can be just as at fault and just as dangerous and just as violent and just as damaging. And I think it's worth acknowledging because it doesn't happen every time, but when it does happen, there is this stigma around men that they cannot admit it or they cannot talk about it because if they were to acknowledge that a woman that was maybe smaller than them, a woman that was maybe their wife, that's supposed to be the loving, caring uh, companion in a relationship, the fact that she can abuse a man is often just not a conversation that's heard of. And 
number one, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm sorry that that had to be the witness and the example of what a woman is in a relationship because that leaves long lasting scars and trust issues. But I'm just sorry from a perspective uh, of being a mother and being a wife and understanding how damaging and how much that can hurt long term. We do need to be more patient and kind and open to men coming out and saying that there has been abuse towards them and not just, hey, there's been emotional abuse, but if there's physical abuse, something needs to happen. Somebody needs to step in. But I've seen it in Canada and I've seen it with individuals where men have reported abuse from women and it's not believed. They just don't believe it at all. Well, how could a big guy like you take abuse or violence from a woman that small? not saying it was me, but I'm just saying like a five foot five, you know, 150 pound woman versus a six foot two, you know, 280 kind of guy. It happens, but it takes a lot of constraint to not hit back. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's the part where like looking at my, looking at my father in, he was a, uh, he was kind of that battered husband, man. And mm -hmm. But I will say that he never left. Like yeah. he never he never left us. And as an with my adult lens, looking back now, I admired I admire that about about him. And he had his own issues and still does. But the fact that he put up with 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 her, I mean, it, it was so bad to where like like he couldn't even if we went to eat somewhere uh like at a at a steakhouse or whatever, you know, and if he looked up and was like looking towards the direction of a waitress, like mm. she would, she would just make a scene and say that he was, he was like, what are you, what are you looking at her? Like just so jealous. And so like, it was just, but that to me, like that was normalized, you know, and right. I, I couldn't, we couldn't really, I was like, oh, I'm making a scene again. And and if we were at home, like things would just fly across the, the table at dinner or whatever. And they they were trying, that's for sure. I mean, we if you on the surface, if you looked at the way that we, we had Christmas, we had they would literally like make sure we had the nicest whatever clothes that we in, but not pay this bill or that bill. Mm -hmm. um, it was very superficial on the surface. And I think that was just a matter of like, my mom used to have to like put her face on, you know, when she'd go out in public, mm -hmm. she'd have to, she'd have to look, you know, look a certain way. And, and um, to me, like that really, you know, but she was also like somebody that nobody could fuck with me. Like she protected me <laughs> more than, and that's where I was like a, a mama's boy in that sense. Um, because you know, she was extremely, um, like smothering, but at the time, like affectionate. And, you know, to, to me, I think that was the definition of how you display or show love, you know, for mm -hmm. one another. And, you know, it's taken me years to figure out, you know, how much all of that played into how I've tried to parent myself or how I've conducted my own, my own self and, and behaviors. And, and, you know, I think that the, the there's other elements of the childhood where like from my first visual memory was I was traumatized. My, my father, my 
my father's father, so my grandfather on that side, mm-hmm. you know, molest, molested my sister. Jesus and, Christ. I didn't see that coming. I, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, it's, uh, that was my first visual memory at five, six years old. And um, that fractured everything for me when it came to who I can trust, like what, like sexual relationships, period. And, and in the same, you know, it just, it, they didn't protect me, us, us, period. And we just ran away from it. And that's where I felt like we've always just kind of ran away from, from when things get really hard, you know, and um, I, it's definitely something I could never talk about. You know, I'm not going to go into depth on it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't just, you know, him molesting her. He also molested me. And um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that you don't think it's ever, ever going to affect you or your family, but you, you have to, you have to be able to protect your children and, and, uh, you know, internally, you know, and externally to, to uh, the environment that you they bring me to. And I, I think that's where, if I look at how I could never, I ne- I could never, I, I learned to gauge people's like the atmosphere, the emotional intelligence, whatever. I learned that very early on because it was a self-defense mechanism. Like I had to figure out like, am like, because my emotional state was so directly connected to theirs. Mm-hmm. So I had to, I learned to read, that very very early on and be a people pleaser right, right. or like, give them what they need not what i need so <clears throat> i think that that is another another element to how i've i've just lived my life up to more recently um was can I, was it um was it your dad's dad or was it your mom's dad this is my my father's father okay so i guess i'm just wondering why because your mom's behavior in terms of how she reacted to things, you know, that just, when I think about her, the jealousy levels and and then her overreaction, her throwing things across the room, you know, those types of behaviors, it's like something that's trauma. That's just trauma bleeding on everyone else, right? That's her life not being treated a certain way or being treated a certain way, just bleeding out as a mother. The example that she was shown, right, is no different than her reaction and the way that you were shown. And it's when there's this thing I learned recently, there's a doctor named Dr. John Deloney. We had him on the podcast not that long ago. Brilliant man, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, man of God, somebody who really leans into his family hard, but also acknowledges the difficulties that he's had as a parent or being a parent in the learning lessons. And, you know, he said something to me, he's like, um, you know, like trauma, obviously, when when you don't deal with it, you bleed on everyone else around you. But but also when you when a parent leans on a child, when a parent um, is overbearing and smothering like that, there that caused this helicopter parenting. All that does is place anxiety on the children. All it does is remove anxiety from the adult and place it onto the children. And then the children live for that parent, and the parent lives for that child. And then when children leave the home or grow up or, you know, go off, or if you're just a stay at home mom, and I say, just, I sorry about that. I didn't mean it that way. I've been a stay at home mom. I can't do it. 
I've tried. It is the hardest job in all of the world to raise humans properly. And I kind of, you know, it's not that I checked out, but I, I started working again because the idea of just being home hurt my brain physically. I could not cope with it. And I learned a long time ago that children feel everything. When I'm having a bad day, my son will communicate with me in the same frustrations I'm feeling about whatever the situation is. He will then pick up on that energetically without me saying words, and he will then have a bad day. How I choose to show up is how he will choose to show up and interact with us. And so when you as a parent, helicopter parent your child. Don't ever let them get hurt. Smother them with all of those things and really just protect them from the world instead of allowing small dose adversity to hit them so that when real life hits them, they can handle it. You become this, uh, not obsessive, but all encompassing. All that matters is the parent. And selfishly, that's what your parents did to you. And it seems like your father from the outside was a very, um, because if there was assault towards you and your child, uh, you and your sister, you know, that doesn't fall far, right? If your father was in the presence of that person, it sounds like that's why not only was the mom, your mom causing trauma and other things, but it sounds like your dad never coped with some of the things that most likely happened to him. Did you ever talk to your parents? Have you ever sat down now as a grown adult and talked to your parents about their life and why they are maybe the way they are? Um, well, we're going to open a whole nother can oh, of worms. We're but, doing but all the worms. That's fine. Uh, I think that it's a it's a good, there's really no easy way to, to describe this other than just to start chronologically. So, okay. like, we obviously moved, we both moved out. I left when I was 18 and, you know, I had to, my mother signed the dotted line for me to join the army. And, um, initially ever like they were super supportive of, of what I was doing in the army, but like my first paychecks that I saved in the basic training and AIT and all that, I gave all of it to my family. And because that's just the, that codependency that I was raised in about, we, we do not, we always help the family and, and it, uh, but then it became so, so toxic for me as a, as a young man trying to create something in, in my own family. And, uh, I think they, they all started to see that I'm, I'm doing things and trying to, you know, better myself. And, but they would continue to try to like inject themselves into it. And then it was causing so much of a issue with my wife and I, and, and, you know, I, I married into, having Ethan, you know, he was three and, you know, just turned four when we were dating and then we got married and then we had Kyla, which she's 17 now. But, um, if you fast forward, so there was a lot of like the way I was raised with my family and then trying to start my own family. And it was just causing a lot of like friction, like, and for the right reasons, because Erica is the most stable thing I've ever had in my life my wife and um and the strongest person i've ever known and but you know very proud people you know that i grew up with and um we don't talk about our own problems with other people and this other shit we figure it out internally mm -hmm. and um 
I think so I kind of just ran away from it right like for a few years and because every time I would bring my mom into it or my sister like it would just like unravel because they they it's just yeah they're all very unhealthy people um and it it really my world kind of turned upside down looking back at my military career my adult life around 2006 when I was in the special forces Q course qualification course and I Erica found a mugshot of of my mother online like a mugshot right she oh, had Jesus. two black eyes she looked like strung out and and it and for me I was like what in the fuck is this because my mother never she never drank or used drugs growing up like she just didn't and um when I saw that I was like immediately started trying to figure out like what's going on and uh long story short is I, I found out that she left my father for a man like 10 years younger and that had been it had been going on for four months or five months at that point and all of our stuff that was from our childhood was put into some sort of like a, a storage unit mm-hmm. and then and they let it and they they didn't pay it or whatever so it it got auctioned off all of this happened within like a six month time period where they didn't no one told me when it initially mm-hmm. happened so i was uh i was hurt by that and i couldn't really explain how how i felt other than i was angry and but i know looking back i was i was like it was betrayal it was abandonment it was all these things where they didn't feel like they could have because I could have rectified some of that. Um, so I don't have any of my memory, you know, all the memories that we had from childhood. Now everything is just, I remember all the bad, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't have any of the photos or the trophies and like all these things that, you know, I think are so important, but we, I couldn't have, I didn't realize how important they were until now, but looking back on it, like this woman that I, you know, put on this pedestal, was very much like a a facade and Mm -hmm. right there she was my protector right so like she was the person that wouldn't let anyone fuck with me and it's the way i was raised and and when i saw that it really it really turned my world upside down and i and i didn't realize that at the time but you know this is me looking back at the start point of the start point of like a lot of the behaviors that I developed over time, you know, obviously started from childhood, but then that was kind of the point as an adult where I just went away and I was like, well, fuck them, fuck mm-hmm. them. And, um, cause immediately I was going, I'm going to go down there and kill this motherfucker. Right. Uh, whoever that this other guy was. And Eric is like, Nope, we need you. You're not doing that. I was like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, so I just, what I did was avoid. I just went, all right, fuck that. Cause I tried and it was causing all kinds of, cause my mother was in such denial and I could go down the years, but the bottom line is, is that she is still doing those same things to okay. this day, to this day. So this, that was a really long way of answering. I haven't okay. had the, I haven't had the ability to have that conversation with her. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't know if I'm necessarily ready for it, 
but I do know that it's something that I need to have at, at some point because I don't know how many other chances that she has, you know, because right. she's, she's already OD'd, I don't know, three times. Um, <sighs> and, you know, the last time, like, well, if I back up, like, the last, like, real conversation, I won't even say real, the last, like, conversation that lasted more than a minute was in 20, uh, 2016. So the, the Molly thing happened in 2015 into 16. I came home, moved out. Like I, I was in, I was in probably the worst place of my life. And, you know, I'm obviously trying to open up those doors to my mother or my father or any, any family. And, uh, where I couldn't communicate with Erica in that, in that space, help uh, in a healthy way. And, right. um, but I'm also drinking and, and my mother calls me and she's asking me for money or for whatever. And then she starts talking to me. Like it was tri very triggering to me because she, she started talking to me. Like, uh, like I remember talking to my father and uh, she was like, you're a piece of shit. Like you only care about your, your family. You don't care about us. Like you think you're better than everybody, all these things, man. And I was just like, Hey, and I said this, and this was very much an uh, injury to my to my own self because I didn't mean it, mm -hmm. but I damn sure believed I did. Where I was like, "I'm not my father, and right. I will come. I will come down there and fuck you up." Oh, and, Jesus! And, and uh, and I mean, that's just like how that's the the mind space or the head space I was in during that time. Anyways, I was, I I no longer believe that what I was doing in the military was like, it wasn't about, it was about something bigger than me, but man, that thing bigger became like, uh, like a job or like a, an identity. And then mm -hmm. when that, when that was challenged, like why I was still alive and I, science didn't really make sense so many times over. And I just was in dealing with evil, like pure evil. I was like, I'm just, I must just be more evil than them because if I go back, because that's how I'm still here. And mm. so that's the whole like monster inside of me that I, I believe it was on the surface for a very like long time, 2016, and then elements throughout, throughout the, the six, seven years beyond. But, um, part of that was goes back to like powerlessness and, and being, and if I wasn't in control, like I got hurt. So. Right. I just had to be in control and give everybody in my life, like thought they were close to me, but they never were. Mm -hmm. Like I gave them this sense of like, like letting them in, but I'd never, I never let anyone fully in because I was too, I was too scared to look inside of there. Well, so, when you, when you grew up, the way you grew up, that, that doesn't shock me. Nothing you're saying is like, Oh, X, Y equals Z. I mean, it makes besides I'll fuck my mom up. Kind of besides, thing. Yeah, well, listen, kind of I never, I never thought I'd hear that out of your mouth, but that's the thing though. People, people do not understand. Uh, listeners do not understand. If you've never been put in the position where control has been taken from you and you've been harmed and you've been hurt for the most formative years of your existence, 
It's going to create something in you. And whether that's a wall, whether that's this darkness to protect yourself, if only because nobody else was there to protect you, even though you saying your mom was there to protect you, there was an element of that that wasn't. She was a protector, but on the flip side, depending on her mood, she was also the thing causing the pain. And when you have that as your environment that you grow up in, that is how your brain wires. And it doesn't shock me when you say like, I didn't want to look inward. I didn't want to see that darkness. Well, I'll be honest. That darkness is what kept you alive for a long time. That darkness is what held you together and is the reason why you're still sitting here right now in existence. Because if it didn't, there's moments in combat where you either show up or you become the liability. It's that simple. And that darkness very often is the reason why a lot of people don't become the liability. It's the switch. It's that that light switch that turns on and everything else turns off and you can go and execute and it, you don't have feeling about it because it's you or them. And when people are like, well, you know, I don't understand, like I'm going to small tangent here. I had somebody recently DM me, somebody fairly famous DM me and go, you're the, you're what's wrong with the world. You're, you fight other people's wars. And I just respond with, you do not understand what it feels like to look into someone's eyes that has just murdered tons of people and has no shame about it. You have no idea what pure evil, and I mean to the depths of our humanity, looks like. So when people say, how could you go do that? How could you go X, Y, and Z? How could you go take life off this planet? You do it because it's you or them, and you're able to do it because of the way you were raised whether we like it or not, somebody that comes from a house that's super loving, that never has conflict, that has tons of money, that's comfortable. You don't see those motherfuckers out there shooting people in the face to protect other strangers. You don't because there is something that happens as children when we are around tumultuous situations, heavy situations, stuff that like, what, what is my favorite? Dr. Phil says, do not put adult problems on small minds. That's what happens when you grow up in environments like that. It creates an alter ego or this thing that steps forward to go, I'm going to protect the inner child. I'm going to make sure that this child inside does not get hurt any longer. So I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to be that bad dude that can do the things that nobody else will want to do or can do. So that's what came out. That thing that protects you just said to your mom, I will fuck you up because I'm done being fucked up by you. That's all mm -hmm. it was. It's a normal reaction, in my opinion. <laughs> Sorry for yeah. this crazy sounding, but no, no. I think you're you're definitely there. There's a lot. There's a lot that goes into like if we break down like how how can how can you operate in in environments like that and then sleep at night and all these other things and, and you know I've 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 looked at it, I've looked at all of it where for me the the ability to compartmentalize is is paramount right mm -hmm. to be able to do the to do that at any sort of like op op tempo um but compartmentalization is just a tool to operate inside of that space and you have to have a plan or a a, a mechanism needs to be you know in place for you to unpackage the things that you've compartmentalized or else it's just going to compound and compound and compound until until how it manifests in your life how it seeps out uh 
because you can only hold in so much. And and I was the perfect example of trying to hold all of that in. And and I'm the only one I can trust. And you know, uh and that's where like it started. If I look at the Radisson, the Molly attack thing as a it was one of many traumatic things I've been through, but uh, or combat pick up combat, put traumatic. It doesn't mm-hmm. fucking none of that shit matters. Trauma is trauma. It's yours. It's mine. Like right. anything less than nurturing can be perceived or conceived or uh, received as traumatic. And that mm-hmm. to me is like, holy shit. When I actually was able to realize that about how much I'm inflicting either directly or indirectly, like to the ones I care about most, um, just because I won't go back to like, oh, well, they don't know how bad it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, so like what I'm doing isn't that bad, you know, so like, oh, it's rationalization, it's minim- minimizing your behaviors and normalizing certain behaviors. And, and I will say that you have to have some sort of the ability to unpackage and we do that with another human being and God, mm-hmm. higher power. But if I look at my whole life, like I've yearned to believe in God and trust in God, but but I was always so apprehensive to fully do it because I couldn't see it. And if I couldn't see it, I couldn't touch it. I, I, I damn sure wasn't going to believe it. Mm-hmm. So, and that goes back to control. Like I always had to be in control and it took all the things and I've endured all the things I've endured because God knew I could. And it was just for me to see that that is the reason I've endured the things I have. And now I'm doing that, keeping that at the forefront of, I don't want to put myself into those environments anymore because it was only going to end very, very poorly for me and for my family. So I've relinquished control, you know, surrendering truly and fully. And that started with my, my, uh, my, um, my alcoholism, like I, mm-hmm. I, it was the one thing, it was the thing that I was like, all right, I, I gotta, I, I'm not abstained from alcohol for different periods, but I was doing it for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, there was always, I was always going to end up like, it was going to creep its way back in. And just because I didn't have to wake up and drink or go to sleep and have to drink and, like I, I I couldn't rationalize in my mind. I'm like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic because I, mm-hmm. I know it. Like I watched my dad like every night drink 24 fucking beers. And I'm like, well, I don't do that. So, I'm, but I was a high functioning alcoholic. And once I, and I say all this because it's been almost a year and a half now of sobriety, but I'm like, that was just the beginning when I truly accepted that I was powerless to something that actually really opened the door to believing in something truly believing in something greater than me and that's kind of that's been the the missing link my whole life and you know you couple that with like trying to really build uh, my spiritual conditioning Mm -hmm. during my sobriety then with the the psychedelic medicine stuff where i actually went and and you know brought god into that experience with me and truly let go let's talk Um, about that let's let's we're going to kind of bounce around uh i want to talk about that uh let's first go into where you're at now because um when you and i met you were fairly new 
into uh, the transition period, which has been incredibly recent. I mean, super recent. And you have welcomed God into your life as of as of this year, very seriously when you got baptized. But you have done some other things to try to work on yourself um, through alcohol and through uh, trying to just become a better father, a more present husband and things like that. But you utilize psychedelics to do so. And I want to talk about that because that has been the thing that I know for a fact is saving our community. I've seen it. I've touched it. I felt it. I've been witness to it. And it is it is changing and saving veterans' lives unlike anything I have ever seen um, besides the government trying to help, which is just causing suicides to go through the roof with over-medication. So tell me, you went through VETS program, which is friends of ours, Marcus and Amber Capone, uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment. And they sent you somewhere to go work on yourself. How in depth would you like to go into that? Is there anything that we cannot touch on that? No, it's, we can definitely okay. talk about it. I uh, so I think you 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 touched on this as well. Where I the big thing for me, like since 2016, like if I were a dry bushel like me holistically that was the radisson was the the spark that lit that book that bushel onto fire and that's when my my life started to become and unmanageable i just wasn't ready to see it because i had so much pride and so much like i got this and um but that was basically so from 2016 till now like i stayed operational through 20 2020 and I was and but I did keep that door open for help, realizing that my life, it was becoming unmanageable, whether it was it, the the talk therapy or, or you know, they, they put me on to antidepressants and, you know, but through those years and I went to, I don't know, three or four different therapy intensive things over that period of time. I've gotten three Staling Gate blocks, the mm -hmm. neck shots where it's supposed to reset the asympathetic or sympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system. And, you know, I was, I kept that door open, whether the door was wide open for help or barely open, shutting it looks like me taking my own life. Correct. So I kept it open. And I think what, what kept, what kept me from keeping it or what kept me, what had, what, how I kept that door open was because I wanted, my goal was to be the best operator and team leader in the unit I was in and beyond that so it was almost like everything i was doing was to feed into that so as mm -hmm. long as i could stay operational it was essentially just patching holes and it was just patchwork right and then just to keep going but everything in my life that i really cared about started to fall fall in my wake and um just to kind of set the conditions it wasn't like i went from uh, something going on, skip forward five, seven years. And then I just did plant medicine. It, it, there, there was a ton of different things. And I've, like I said, I've abstained from alcohol for six, seven months during twice during that period. Um, up until I actually, you know, finally gave in, you know, uh, a year and a half ago with my sobriety. Um, but I, I view like my definite, I don't have a rock bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, 
rock bottom means it's my inability to lower the standards, my standards faster than the actual circumstances. So there is like a temporary rock bottom. And I don't know if it's like digging a hole, jumping in or the climb out, like, mm -hmm. but, but that third one I hit was what I talked about on the show and it was uh, on the Sean show. And, um, I finally saw myself for how I was acting, you know, mm -hmm. from outside of my body. And, and that, that was, that was what, that was what opened, opened up my, my, uh, myself to like, Hey, let's try the AA out. Let's see if this is actually, cause up to that point, I was like, man, that's too fucking, it's yeah. too much to this, to that. Um, but then when I started going, I was like, holy shit. Like, like I said, the, the, the powerlessness, like, man, if I look at all the different principles, I'm like, there's some key ones on there that I'm like, man, that's me. But then if I was being honest with myself, I'm like, nope, you can't have integrity in part of your life. And then in other parts of your life, like you use alcohol as a barrier to just do whatever the fuck you want. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just how I've lived my life. And, and um, you know, I think. The plant medicine piece, I was, uh, you know, I was about a, a year sober when I did it. And I came back, you know, that was November, early November. I came back from that. So of last year. Mm -hmm. And um, that was single-handedly like the most profound spiritual and healing process I've ever been through. And I think, I think that. Had I had that opportunity earlier in that, in all of it, I could have just skipped a lot of that bullshit. Mm -hmm. And the big, the big thing was though, I wasn't ready to receive a lot of the messages that I was being given or blessings, you know, and, and it wasn't my time. So it's like, right. but I do believe that it, because people ask me like, well, when's the, when's the time for me? Like, when should I go and do this? You know? And I'm like, man, you're the only one that can know that, but I'll just say mm -hmm. that it it has the ability to take all of your pain your trauma your addiction uh the darkness it can take all of that away if you're intentional about it mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how much you've been through or how how little you think you've been through it's it 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 doesn't it doesn't really care right what it cares about is like your intentions with the medicine and and I think that 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 was a an amazing process where the uh, ibogaine and five meo DMT coupled together are a, like an amazing um, an amazing experience. That's awful. Like it sucks. <laughs> like ibogaine sucks. Like it just sucks. I don't know how else to explain it. Like it's it's like really hard on your body, but it's because it's trying to you know purge and detox all these things out, out of your system and and uh and if you're intentional with it like you can you can ask them you can ask i began certain questions and i had all these pre-counseling questions that i was going to lay out and then when it came to it all i did because they do a fire ceremony the night the night you 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 start the i began and it's very ceremonial. Like you have an altar that you sit in front of and eventually you lay, you lay down, but 
like you start outside with a fire ceremony and you can either say or just burn your intent, like whatever your intentions are um, or what you want to ask of the medicine or have it take away. And I just asked it to take the darkness away. And uh, it was like, cause I was, there's too many things where I was just like, man, there's too many, I don't know. Is it the chicken or the egg here? Like, I don't know. (laughs) But, but uh, I was like, fuck all of that man i just want i just want to not live in the darkness anymore and um you know you take that first pill and it didn't nothing hit me until probably the fourth pill but like and i still because there's a there's also an element of like my survival response or mechanism is so Mm -hmm. strong to protect myself from my that true that little boy that was scared you know and like that armor those layers of just Mm -hmm. so they're so like and this makes this will make more sense because i'm going to tell you like how my experience happened after that you take the first one an hour later you take the second and then you're in the room and you're hooked up with heart rate monitors and like there's a medical staff there with you and and uh i'm like sitting there right you know they're playing this booty beauty music booty it's from the the tribal region of africa and it's just like what the fuck is this <laughs> i can't really make sense of it but uh <clears throat> so i'm just like shaking my little maraca thing you know and and uh i can just I'm picture just, yeah i'm just like yeah yeah and uh <laughs> i'm like do something do something hey, let's go part of it, i'm like let's go and um you know i think like when I laid back and I was just, I finally like let go a little bit, you know, instead of trying to force something, I let go. And then it started, it didn't really, I didn't, I didn't ever hallucinate. Like I, it's very intuition based. And, but I will say that when I, when I was able to relax and let go, that's when I started receiving some of the, intu- uh, the in, uh, uh, intuition stuff. And mm-hmm. it was like, if I open, there was a point, the first point where I noticed anything was like, cause you wear an eye mask and I heard someone purge throwing mm-hmm. up like next to me. And I, and I heard all this commotion and I was like, Oh shit, they're coming for me. And I, like, <laughs> and I, and I sat up really fast and I like rip off my eye mask. And I was like, ah, I like opened my eyes and like put my shit back down. I was like, Nope. And I laid down and then and then the room, I felt like the room started spinning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to purge now. And uh, and then I purged the first time. And I think that's when I laid back down. And I was like, man, are my eyes open or closed right now? And that's where I went to go, like, touch my eyes. I was like, no, they're definitely closed. And uh, <laughs> because I've got the sleep mask in front of me. And I'm like, you can, you can open your eyes. And, and But I actually started to see my eyes open, but they were closed. I was like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? So, so I just like stopped messing with that. And then it was like, I was kind of going through space almost where it was kind of like, like a dream where I'm just going through space and I'm like in a galaxy or whatever. And I see like, like translucent light lights sporadically, but just dark as fuck and darkness. I just went through the darkness and there was only one figure I saw like the whole that whole time and it was like an a silhouette with translucent kind of lights around but it was from a photo that i remember from my childhood 
where my grandfather on my mother's side, um, which he passed away when I was going through ranger school. And that's a, that's a whole nother story. Um, but, uh, he, he, it was a, a photo of, of him and he had a cow. The reason I know is because he had a cowboy hat on a ponytail and he was like, it was one of the only photos I remembered from my childhood. And, um, like he's mouthing something. I could see him mouthing something. And I was really obsessed with trying to figure it out for what was probably felt like it felt like hours. What the fuck is he trying to say to me? And, um, I never really figured it out, but I believe that this is where the intuition piece comes in where I, I, I believe that he was there to show me that, that he's been watching, mm-hmm. watching out for me and, 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 and more, I think more importantly to show me that there was another side to, you know, my family that mm-hmm. was, was from a grandfather perspective that um, now he was no perfect man at all, but I do believe that that's what I, I needed to see, you know, there in that moment. Um, and then the he rest never, of it was, he never hurt you. No. Yeah. No. So maybe I mean, that was his way of showing you that this isn't, we're not all, like you said, he's yeah. not perfect, but you know, there's, there's ways to communicate afterwards. Yeah. yeah and I, that's where I think that's what I believe it to be. And um, uh, so like that whole next day. So this, you know, from 8 PM until I was like one of the first ones to get up in the morning. I was like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I tried to like jump up and I was like, Ooh, and I was like, can I go to my room? Cause it, I was just like, I'm done with this. Right. And, uh, <laughs> they were like, yeah. So they had me roll over there. You're hooked up to your, to the IV and stuff still. And I got over there and they like kind of, cause it went back to watch the rest of the group. And I was like, okay. And I like ran to the bathroom. Cause I like, I stood yeah. up too soon to shit or not shit to, to shit. <laughs> to uh to throw up and uh it's a it's like a one-way thing um as far as the purging but so they call that the gray day that whole next day and uh you know that was that was about the extent of the ibogaine experience for me and and you know leading up to the 5-MeO is a a shorter uh a shorter they call that the bliss drug um and it's like from a toad or poisonous toad uh, the excretions or whatever, but you know, that's, that's where you go back to doing it. Or it's just you. And like, for me, it was Trevor, Trevor from, uh, Malar. Uh, he's actually Canadian. A. Eh? And oh, um, God. why does everybody group us all together? They're like, you're that Canadian with the hat, with the bullets. And then, Hey, I know this Canadian guy. So you guys yeah. must know each other or be friends. Hey humans. I know you've all been seeing me drink HVMN's Ketone IQ lately. This is a game changer. Jet fuel in a bottle. I use Ketone IQ for everything in my life, whether it's running, cycling, podcasting, or just the extra boost that my brain needs. I won't lie, it helps push me to the next level in all things. I love Ketone IQ and what HVMN stands for. Go grab some shots today at HVMN.com and use the code BRASS20 and save. Yeah, it, well, he's the one that does, he runs the, for vets, he does all the, the, I've never, uh, sat with vets. I've only ever gone with heroic hearts. So I'm not, I don't know okay. all of the individuals. I know Marcus and Amber really well. They're good friends, but in terms of, um, going to sit in a ceremony, I've 
I've never sat with Ibogaine. I've never sat with 5-MeO. I've sat with ayahuasca and psilocybin. And those mm-hmm. have been my two uh, main focuses in working through what I needed to work through. So no, I, I apologize. I don't know that Canadian, but I, I will look him up after this though now. No, so he he did. Um, so he's the psychedelic healer. He, he started his practice with this in Canada at opioid like clinics or yep. whatever, where they were using Ibogaine like mm-hmm. with people in withdrawals and you can administer, it's like one of the only drugs you can administer with someone mm-hmm. in an opioid withdrawal and, uh, and it, it like saving lives, you know, and then he linked up with Marcus and, and, um, Amber and then started running it for, for, through vets, you know, and, um, he, he uh, he's a phenomenal human being, man, because he, he sat through this experience with me. He, he did an interview with Sean Ryan as well. Oh, okay. Trevor. Yeah. So when Sean went and did this experience, he, he came, he brought mm. Trevor back onto the show. Um, and so like when I, when I sat down with him to do five me, like it's a, it's a, like a vape that you smoke or mm-hmm. whatever. And, he has you kind of sitting there and you're by yourself. Well, you're with him and a medical guy and you inhale it or whatever, hold, hold for 10, he counts or whatever. Then you hold it in and then he starts to like lower you down to where you mm-hmm. go back onto your, you're sitting, right? So he lowers you back onto a pillow. And when you get to one, you know, he says, let go and he lets go of you and your head, it's the pillow. And that's when it kind of like, is just this immense, like light, white whiteness so like in contrast of darkness to light and it's like the most beautiful light i've ever ever seen and i started moving towards it and then things and shapes got very abstract and i was like what in the fuck is this and then (laughs) i could tell that with just an abstract like shapes like it was very chaos right inside of this um my body and my mind like I, I, uh, it like stopped the, the five me from doing anything else after that. I was just like one single cheer. I, I, I said this in my head, but as I'm saying it, or, uh, I think I said it out loud as well, a single tear kind of went down my cheek and hit my ear. And I was like, I'm too far gone. Like I'm too damaged. And, uh, I thought I just, thought it i thought i just said it out in my head but then i think i said it out loud because trevor was like no kyle i want to i want you to do that again so um so i did it again and this time i don't know what what he did different or whatever but this time when he let go like lowering me back it was like that let go was like it started like getting louder and louder, let go, let go, like, and there's louder and louder. And then it just started to reverberate through my body, mm-hmm. like this, let go, like screaming at me. And, uh, and, th- and this time I, I went towards that light. And to me, that was God. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't have my mask on this time. I'm like looking over at trevor and behind him i see this this light i see god behind trevor and it's just it's beautiful and i actually look over and i say hey is is it okay and uh and he looks at he actually whether he said it or god said it uh, to me it was uh he said it's okay 
and uh right there i just started like a waterfall of tears started like just like i was in a waterfall but they were legitimately just tears just crying and 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 he actually reaches over and and then like hugs me and like now i kind of sit up and i'm hugging him and as i as i i wrap my arms around him my arms actually go through his body and then they are like now i'm hugging myself but to me it was like that feeling of i am we are one you know as a human being and then when i was hugging myself like looking back on it it's like i needed to give myself this hug but and then that hug became this weightlessness feeling of like i was being held like a baby you know and 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 it was like all the weightless all the weightlessness was now lifted and taken away uh in my body like i was being held by my father mm. and god and right then like that's when that waterfall became at first it was like oh this is like too much and i was going to start to like buck this but then i realized i could breathe and it was legitimately just me crying and then like convulsing crying after that when i laid back down and then it turned into laughter like a child like like ugly crying <laughs> into like crying like a baby or laughing like a like a like a small child and uh is the I mean it was like the most beautiful experience I've ever had in my inner, life and your inner child was being held and protected for the first time and you actually yeah. were able to hold yourself yeah and then like for me like the like bringing God into it with me like I truly felt like everything he's been trying to show me for so long um was for is for a reason and and uh, I'm just not ignoring it anymore. Well, you, know? you you didn't, you know, when you when you do a psychedelic experience like that, like you're not bringing God into it. You're God is into it. That that's mm -hmm. part of it. You know, a lot of people that I talk to, I'm what um is like described as a recovering Catholic. I'm I was the one who was born and baptized, put in Catholic school, went to church church at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending on if Nana wanted to go. I did the communion. I did the confirmation where you the white where you wear the white dress as a child, which makes no goddamn sense to me. That's just weird. Um, ugh, I have an issue with putting small children in like wedding dresses and then walking them towards like a priest. It's just not a vibe I'm down for. Um, and so I did this into up until grade eleven of my life, right where went to the school, did the thing instead of having like an extra English class or a math class, you had a religion class where you studied the Bible, you broke it down, you wrote about it, you did all these things. And for me, at no point in my entire existence did I ever feel a connection to that, ever. There was no... When I hear people now as adults talk about God, I have these two really amazing individuals in my life, Neil, um, called Neil and uh, Ruve McDonough, and they are God country family. That's the way it works, right? And when I hear people like that talk about God, and when I hear them talk about the love they have for God and like how it's a, just a, it's like another person in their family. I never had that. So when individuals talk about God, they talk about it in the same sense of this person being in their lives. I never, I never understood it until the moment I went and sat with ayahuasca. 
When you go and have a psychedelic experience, you're opening yourself up to something way bigger, more powerful than yourself. And that is God. And the medicine is what provides that connection and that tool. And that moment where you talk about sitting and being held or being hugged and having that moment and you were like, I'm sitting with my father. I know what that feels like. I don't perceive it the same way and use that word God because to me that has always been this word that's been attached to some really not lovely things. So for me, I just say the universe because whether that's trauma related and I'm not ready to accept that word or whether that's that's just how my body brain receives the medicine, it is the same thing. It is the light, the greater connector, the thing that holds us all together, the thing that says we are one. And it and it can show up in, in all different ways. And that's why it's like you don't necessarily need to invite God in a psychedelic experience. God is there. Period. Yeah, yeah I think if if you if with people that like maybe struggle with organized religion or uh you know, even um that are agnostic, it it's they still believing in something greater than yourself is I think the most important part to ever really healing and, st and mm -hmm. not just healing, but um, ever getting yourself outside of yourself and, and really like building a, a, a sense of self from God and, or from something greater than you and, and within, and then being selfless, you know, and mm -hmm. from an altruistic mindset. And you know, for me, it's uh, I don't care like who your God is or you know, what it could be the woods. It could be the universe. Mm -hmm. I, it doesn't matter to me. It's the, it, I do know that there is a common, there's a common thread between all of them is just believing in something bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, that's where I won't ever cast judgment on anyone because for one, who am I to judge others? Like period. Um, that's not for me to do. And uh, I do know that, that that's been the biggest piece for me is I've yearned for something that I could trust that was bigger than me. Mm -hmm. Um, but it can't be an institution. It, you know, it can't be, it can't be a job. Mm -hmm. Um, it needs to be, and that's where I go back to the impact that you can make in other, in our youth's lives is, is can be so profound without even realizing, you know, where that, the impact that you could you could have is because what our our youth need more than anything is is positive role models in their lives and and uh and that and that doesn't necessarily have to be biological parents you know mm -hmm. so so that's the that's the, i don't know i just think that that's that's it's paramount to ever really being a contributing member of society is believing in you know something greater than you when you can and believe a, a functioning like adult uh, human <laughs> productive part of society is what our government calls it when they're talking about reintegration of military <laughs> we need you well, to it be talks about being like grounded in humanity like right. i wasn't for a very mm -hmm. long time i was so desensitized to life and death and 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 that that only fed into all the other things that I had like mm -hmm. rationalized or been normalized behaviors from childhood. And it was only going to end very, very badly for me. 
and for what I care about, if I continued to stay in those environments, I was never going to heal staying in those environments I was working in. And I damn sure wasn't, no one was forcing me to do it. Like right. I was, yeah. I was, and I'm taking ownership and agency and having, you know, agency in my life and, and, uh, you know, what I'm going to do with it, you know, is the big, is the big piece of it. And I think like to quote scripture, um, from the end, because this really, really, because for a long time, I hung on to like heal that heal that sin cast the first stone because I didn't know how to forgive myself, you know, for any of my actions. And but I, I really tried to anchor myself into that. But I think once now that I have surrendered, like the biggest uh, uh, verse that I've that I really resonates with me is in Corinthians, First Corinthians thirteen eleven, where it's like. When I was a child, I, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Mm -hmm. So for me, I have become a man. And I have to let go of all those childish ways of thinking and, and acting. And, and they're, they're going to still present themselves. Because mm -hmm. like, it's not, this is like, it, it, nothing, it, you don't just, boom, I'm fixed. You know, it's, it, that's not how any right. of this works, but like having little anchors, messages and, and meditation and, and journaling. I know that's a thing you talked about and like having those things to anchor you and center you um, are, are huge because uh, when, because we are creatures of habit and without a mirror, you know, and you can't walk around with a mirror in front of you all the time or else you wouldn't be able to see where you're going. Um, but you do need to have mirrors metaphorically and mm -hmm. uh in your own in your own self, right? These little like systems checks internally and then uh, listening to others, the ones that you want in your life. And mm -hmm. as hard as it as hard as that is, and it this is something I'm struggling with right now. Um like like listening to them, you know, because it's, it's really easy for me to, to, to be like, well, you don't see all the work I'm doing. Well, mm -hmm. you're just focusing on like the surface level. And I'm like, but if that's how I'm showing up to them mm -hmm. for them, then I have to pay attention to it and, and do something about it. Um, because that they are the mirrors that I want in my life. And that's where it's about negativity. And like, I'm not taking input from all these other people in my life anymore like psychedelics, external like, to like very few people you know right and and psychedelics that's one thing i, I want to just like touch on um you spoke about you kind of said it right before you got into the conversation about psychedelics and going you, you know you go you have integration counseling prior to this you have to it's mandatory when you're working with vets and heroic hearts that you do integration counseling prior so that you understand what you're walking into so that you have your intentions set the thing that psychedelics do that most things and most um i don't say medications treatments or or when you're working on yourself does is psychedelics hold up that mirror whether you want to see it or not, you're going to see it. That's why it's so imperative, so important that when you're going into a psychedelic treatment of some type, number one, you know where you're going. Number two, you've set yourself up properly so that you understand when you walk into this situation, you know what you're asking for. You have to be clear about your intention and your message. 
And then afterwards, doing your integration counseling. It is so, so, so important. I cannot stress it enough. When you see the things you see, experience what you experience and sit in the presence of something as powerful as God, you have to be able to then integrate that into your life so that your mind does not crack. Because at the end of the day, we all think that we're ready to handle the stuff that's going to be presented to us, but we do not understand what's going to be presented and the way it's going to be done. And then how that's going to affect us and make us react or act when we come out of it. So it's so important to lean on the integration tools that are given to you because the things that you're doing are not a quick fix pill. They are not going to make everything go away. You're not going to walk away from it and go, everything's perfect now. It requires a significant amount of work, listening and education. And that comes back to what you're just saying. If I'm acting a certain way, but those aren't perceiving it the way that I think I am acting. And they're saying, no, this is how you're coming off. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to learn from it and really sit down with yourself, do things like journaling and grounding yourself and pull yourself back down. Because once you've done psychedelics, it puts you up and you float in a different spot, a different reality, a different realm, a different vibration, whatever you want to call it. It does something to you psychologically, emotionally, physically. It changes something. The way you perceive this world that we are sitting in, it changes you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you you reach a level of consciousness that you could never you could never do unassisted. Um, but one of the things that, like, I know the reintegration or the integration of post medicine is a big a big thing that I. I haven't been doing as much as I, I should. Um, now, I, th I do believe that my integration has been very much like in investing into, you know, my, my faith in God, mm -hmm. um, because that's how I want to live my life. Right. Um, building, building, you know, the new disciplines of, of in life, you know, and every day. Um, but there's the resources that are there, you know, they're there for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. and they're paramount because <clears throat> there is that first month where I just came back and I was like, Oh my God, the way they explained it to me was if, if like your mind is this like fishbowl or whatever, and they just pour, I began just pours in like a gallon of water into this thing. It's like sloshing around until it, until it levels out. And then that, that becomes kind of like a, ba a newer baseline, but for the first month, it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, I don't know. I, I cried more in that mm -hmm. first month than I've ever. Um, and it would, and, but it wasn't just like random outbursts. It was like any, anything to do with humanity would mm -hmm. like trigger. I would get triggered to then get emotional. Um, and, it really like it's beautiful in that sense and you know but i do know that a couple months removed i'm like those i gotta i have to stay stay working on you know on, on the integration piece of all of it because it, it it there isn't just a magic pill like you said it's not just gonna you know come in and fix you if you don't do the work you gotta for one you have to be ready to you have to be open to the work Mm -hmm. And then, and then it'll show you kind of, it'll could show you a way, um, or a new light and then continuing to one thing I, that was huge coming out of that was 
I just like started over. I was like, you know what? Fuck all this. Like I just started over with all the negativity that could potentially manifest itself and was post like Sean's interview. And I was just like, I'm getting a new phone number and new iCloud account, everything just started right the fuck on over. So, and the people that are in my life that I want in my life and that I didn't save their numbers and contacts, like we will reconnect when it's, when it's time. But I am just started, I started over and, and that really helped me feel like, cause you, there's so many networking things and I'm like, oh man, I'm missing up. I was like, fuck all that. Like, I'm just going to start over. And cause it would, regardless, it would always, there, there'd always be an element of it, something manifesting. It's like creeping its way in. Um, if I didn't do that from just a, like a network, like starting mm-hmm. over, like bringing everything right to center and then started to build out and trying to be like very slow and methodical about what I, what I let back into my life, you know? What is it? What is it that you have found besides God that psychedelics have done for you that you don't believe that you could have done on your own? Um, I think the, I mean, the, like my sobriety piece, like, so like, I I don't have the urges to, not that I had an urge to drink for, cause the, the mental obsession was gone. The physical dependence was gone, but you know, I haven't had to take any of the pharmaceutical medication stuff, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, like that's, that's, I mean, that's huge. So I think that that's another massive benefit to it. Like I don't have to take any antidepressants or sleep meds or, and it's like more anxiety meds and it's, that's fucking huge, you know, so massive. from the, from the trauma and the addiction, because whether we like to like can realize it or not, like all of those pharmaceuticals, whether you're prescribed them or not have levels of dependency to them. A hundred percent. It's, it's, you're like detoxing from that. Just the antidepressants was like fucking short circuiting in my brain for a long time. And, um, and then it be, they get like social anxiety and all these other things starting to come up. And I'm like, man, what the fuck is going on? And, uh, yeah, I think that's something that the, the, the plant medicine can take from you and just takes another thing off your plate. Mm-hmm. So you can really focus on building some new disciplines in your life moving forward. Did you notice any sort of physical pain uh, relief happen with psychedelics? As I'm sitting here, I'm like, uh, my lower back. No, <laughs> no physical pain relief. No. Okay. No, no. Okay. I think I have too many pain problems, but uh, I'm actually going to stand up. Live your life, homie. Live your life. Okay. Let's yeah. talk. Let's, let's change gears a little. I want to talk to you a little bit about, no, you've had this conversation again on our friend's show. And I know Sean is, is, has really, he did a great job of diving into the, the technicality of your profession and things like that. Uh, coming from a traditional fighting force, I will not pry on the technicalities of your profession, but I do want to touch base because we have, we've, you know, alluded to it a few times during this conversation. And very often when people ask me, you know, what was the, what was that trauma point? What was that light switch moment? What was that thing that happened 
where everything changed for you, where you were no longer an operator and you, you became, I don't say this darkness, but you be able, you were able to move through life differently. And that seems to be, and what you've alluded to, that seems to be, uh, the Radisson blue hotel in Mali. Can you, can we talk about this? How did that operation come to fruition? Was the plan always to go to Mali? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, All right. Mali, let's go. Uh, it's a country in Africa. Is it? Did you know Canadians deploy there? Do you know that we actually go there? Yeah. I didn't I, until uh, recently. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have known unless, unless I went. Um, so I think like that that trip was in, was as part of a, a deployment cycle and um i i wasn't supposed to be, to be going to that that outstation um up until like a month or so out um where whoever was supposed to go there basically said that they didn't feel comfortable in a suit and tie every day you know briefing an ambassador and in that environment so uh they asked me and I was, of course, like, man, motherfucker. And because uh, <laughs> I mean, they even said they were like, hey, man, I know you're going to get fucking pissed off, but we need you to do this. And, um, and that's really like, I bring that up because it truly is a part of like what's helped me kind of heal through all of that was the fact that it was me there mm -hmm. and God had a plan to put me there so right place right time right person and and that ain't taken away from anyone else but what they would have done i don't know i know what i did mm -hmm. and for a long long time i was like nah that was just a tuesday roger that you know and <laughs> the fact of it is is like you know people are going to have children that are going to have children that are going to have children because of my direct response to that attack and that is something that i i know god put me on this earth to do of many things and uh it, it uh the reason that that one has uh, like impacted me for such a long time i believe is is it was i was seeing you know the the, the attack itself like i was seeing people in western dress you know, um, executed or murdered. And, and, uh, I was desensitized to a certain like demographic or culture in, in whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria up to that point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> like with a kinetic mission, you know, I've been deployed elsewhere, but, you know, as far as the kinetic aspects of it and, um, and then the other part was, the preparation piece right so like preparing my mind body or spirit and spirit and not and or and um for violence mm -hmm. like i didn't get a chance to do any of that and i looked at i look back at the way that we prepare for every mission we go on as even if it's like a no notice just boom like we still do a plan and you know, it's pretty extensive and, and that is its own process of, of, of like protecting, you know, what's, and you're, you're spreading out the risk amongst capable other 
other service members. And, and then, you know, so that, that's a big piece for me, like looking back at why that's impacted me in my own professional and personal life beyond, beyond that, that, and, you know, the, the attack itself, um, it, it was very much like, I mean, it was chaos. It was chaos, the definition of chaos. And like, and we go down and, and uh, take things on as teams and troops and, and larger units going into these very, very chaotic environments. And it's like this controlled chaos environment and you don't have to absorb all of, all of the input. You know, you're just really focusing on your, what you were, you know, safeguarding your own bandwidth and then buying, buying down all the risk with collective experience, you know, working together. And for me, like, I felt like I was the most exposed physically and mentally and spiritually I've ever been in a kinetic environment like that. So everything I'm receiving was like sensory overload because it was like going into the hotel from the time I got a phone call at seven ten in the morning. Okay. Back up, in- back yeah. up. God, I love talking to you because I can just let you go. But also, I need we need to give some context here. So if you have if you haven't listened to Sean Ryan's show with Kyle, please go listen to it. It's a great interview in terms of his depths of this conversation. But to give a little context for those that are listening and haven't listened to it, you were deployed to Mali. And like you said, you were wearing a suit. You were going to be advising. You're going to be having these conversations and briefings. Then you get a phone call, a phone call that you didn't expect a phone call that kind of came out of nowhere and what happened yeah so the phone call itself like went something like hey kyle there's been and there's an attack ongoing at the radisson i had been in country for three weeks at this point so i barely knew which way was up really and you know I'm, i'm in my own like safe house like uh, embassy housing or whatever. I lived in this like four or five bedroom, like townhouse mansion thing by myself because we were trying to build, build out capacity there, but the political environment just wouldn't boots on the ground, whatever, even if it's just partner, partner force, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, development, like, and we were full on, I say, we, the former me, like we were so focused on ISIS at that point and dismantling the caliphate because no one else was tasked with doing it or and so i was like legitimately there to to try to divest of that position to give it to our counterparts in the seal teams and um it's not much it wasn't much of a mission you know mm-hmm. so so like from a mindset perspective like ignorance is bliss man like everybody there was just like oh i can't believe this is happening you know oh my what are we gonna do with our children i'm like why the fuck are your children here first of all like they have someone like me here and that's not me fucking saying anything like bragging i'm just like hey man there's not very many of us and this is Mm -hmm. a fucking shithole for a Mm -hmm. a safe haven for terrorism and like al-qaeda has been rebuilding there forever and the in the trans sahel and 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 ISIS and and uh it's in and a fucking fill in the blank um so if you look at like why they chose that that specific place well to me it's pretty easy it, it you could throw a rock 
from across the street and with a good throw, you could hit the fucking front door of this hotel, regardless if they had security or not. Like there wasn't much standoff. It was a soft target that was Mm -hmm. dense, like with filled with Western, like Western um, people, but mainly the people that stayed at the, or that were there temporary duty, like going to their embassies every morning to work, you know, temporary duty capacity, they'd stay in these types of hotels. And this is, this was a big one. And, um, and that's actually the phone call I got was, Hey, there's been an attack at this hotel or it's ongoing. There's shooting explosions. It looks like five to eight armed gunmen like launched the attack from what looked like a embassy like vehicle, you know, um, like, so <laughs> that to me was the, the first bit of information I got. And I was like, well, fuck. And I could, <laughs> as soon as I went outside, like I had grabbed my kit because it was in my ready kit bag. And they, cause they also called me to see if I could get a hold of the, the deputy chief, which was my next door neighbor. Mm. And cause they couldn't get a hold of him. So I went over there, made a phone call for some other cats to meet me in front of my house. But I went over there and was like, Hey, has there been an, you know, there's been, there's an attack right gone going. And, and he was on the phone with, with whoever in the hotel and he was, and I was like, all right, well, let me get their number. And he looked at me and said, why, like, why would you want their number and room numbers and information? And I was like, because I'm going to go get them. And, right. and he was like, uh, Oh, you do that. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And um, do it well too. And well, it remains to be unseen, but the just figuring shit out on the fly. And, and I tried to do, you know, basically having start points to, to be able to, you know, I'm not just running in there all willy nilly, you know, so Mm -hmm. going, you know, linking up with uh, the MARSOC dudes that were working at the embassy and then the regional security officer that the state department law enforcement, because they knew the floor plans of the hotel and they were like a direct conduit back to the ambassador. You know, that was, you know, I, I, so I formed like a little motley, motley crew. And, uh, and then I just started fucking patrolling, man, principal principles of patrolling and, uh, and just started trying to absorb as much, much information as I could. It was only about 600 yards from their straight line to the hotel from my house. So it didn't take very long to get over there. And then kind of did like a, you know, walk up to dismount and then walk up to kind of absorb as much of it from the last covering concealment as I could. And, and by that point, we had got a phone call with uh, one of the Americans was trapped in a room on fire. And that was kind of the, the launching point for me to say, well, hey, do you know where this room is? The RSO did, the State Department cats. And that's what, and that's what. I basically had to convince the ambassador that I'm just going to go get him and come back. And then we, we kept that. I, I kept, there's a ton of lessons throughout that whole day, but like the, the, the imminent threat to life, like I went right to that mm-hmm. and then pulled, pulled, pulled him out. And then that's when it, I started getting more room numbers from Americans that they knew were there, but were unaccounted for, they couldn't get a hold of. And that, that list just kept growing um through the day so it was very specific for me initially to where i was going direct to two locations but 
you know, I, I, uh, after I pulled that guy out of the room on fire, I went back in to go to this, the highest floor of rooms that I had uh, information on. And in doing so, there was no outside fire escapes because I was want to work my way from the top down because mm-hmm. obviously it's already, they already have the upper hand, you know, they're, they're running around this place, uh, un, unadultered, un, 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 uh, yeah, just no one's, they haven't met any resistance yet. So, mm-hmm. um, but if you can imagine like going into this atrium was like this, uh, embassy suites, like kind of atrium where it's three-sided and multiple stories and it's just super exposed. Um, and it was all, you know, all the fire alarms and just dark and, and scary, you know, it, it just was it. And, and, uh, I couldn't, I could have never used that word before scary. What the fuck does that mean? But it looking back on it, man, it was, uh, I joke around and say it was tight butthole the whole time, Yeah. You know? but that was, that's fear. Right. And it's okay for me to say that and to, to feel that and, yes, and put word to it, you know, and, uh, but it didn't stop. It didn't stop me from taking action. Um, but it was overwhelming because every room I went, regardless of how I'm trying to like prompt other other guys, are like no, you. I was like the one man and the breacher and everything, and there was no moments of reprieve that I was just so used to. As much as I wanted to always be the one man, I could never always be the one man working mm-hmm. with the teams that I'm used to working with, and you know that's a big part about how like it just really took every ounce of my physical mind and like body and 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 then spirit to to handle and deal with what i was being presented but when i went back in i, I basically was like all right here's the room numbers for the highest floor they're they're say they're 7 26 22 and 24 um i went to the lower floor what i, I where it already cleared to and was like all right here's where it should be this is the most direct stairwell all the way up there. So I'm not having to run and then double back and all this other shit. So just trying to be more efficient, efficient with my movements. But in doing so, when I went up that stairwell, I had no way to basically breach that fire rated door from the inside and have any tools. So I went down a few floors and then down another wing to try to hit this other stairwell. And when I did that is when I ran into the actual attackers in this in that same similar type fire rated stairwell. And I talked about that and it at length, I think, on Sean's show about that encounter. And and uh, you know, it uh that was uh that was a very, very uh, intense few encounters right there. And from the gun, like exchanging gunfire from four or five feet away in this, in this concrete stairwell where I'm just like, I thought for sure that I was dead after that first shot. Cause I'm looking down this guy's muzzle now. And, but I did see his demeanor change in his eyes because he saw this big American with fucking panos on and running up the stairwell. And, but you know, I'm here in the clearance and he's there and he, he's got me dead to rights, but um that's where i thought for sure i was i was dead like right then but i didn't die and i kept fighting and but i'm now i'm kind of stumbling back and i will i I like ran back up the stairs and like i'm cussing these dudes out 
And uh and um that's when they threw, you know, threw basically threw two grenades on top of me as well. But um and I just ate all of that. Like because I was able to jump down the stairs and get out of get to like relative cover. Mm-hmm. Um I thought for sure when I when I did go back outside after after a little bit after we I locked those guys into that spot because they had no way to go any higher. It was like right. this separate wing that they built and added on that it was all it was just all sorts of confusing. But um they actually were looking for a certain bank of rooms in the hotel that the Air France crew stayed at. Why? So because they were targeting France. They were targeting Westerners. They knew that right. there was a, that's why they launched the attack from it wasn't embassy driver vehicles. They actually started across the street sitting on suitcases mm. full of all their shit. And then just across the street, just opened the suitcases and like got geared up and and chased everybody in because the embassy drivers for all the embassies or whatever show up at the same time to pick them up after breakfast and they and they just followed them in and a majority of the people they killed were were the ones that were in the the breakfast area and i'm sorry i need to stop for a second how in god's green earth are we dumb enough to have government officials be leaving and entering a soft target at the same time every day with the same vehicles and not think something is going to happen. Well, that's just that's where it goes back to the ignorance is bliss. Jesus. Until it until it isn't. And uh yeah, I mean that's the only way to that's the only kind of response. It doesn't make it okay, but I yeah, will say enough. that like in in a uh you know so they chased everybody initially through into the breakfast room area and that's yeah. where they ended up setting that whole room on fire but then a majority of the people they killed i'd say at least 14 people like following the man in front of you or whatever but someone had the idea to go into a service elevator area off of mm-hmm. the kitchen where the, the banquet room connected the breakfast room and if they would have just went Instead of going left into that, if they'd have just went a little right, and then there's a hallway that's freedom. Freedom's on the end of that hallway there. They chose to go to an elevator. And corral and, themselves. And and like there was really only one way to go, like up on that elevator. So that's where they they end up like executing a lot of them right there, like point blank range uh, to, the, to their head. And um, that's actually where the American was killed. American um, citizen that was there, Anita Dattar. And um, so I think there's a a ton of lessons that came out of all of that, but don't any active threat that happens, like there's, there is windows where you can, you can get, get the fuck out. And if you are within one of those windows or if you're being pursued by that, like don't go to a fucking elevator like go to stairwells to exit signs and follow and understand like the emergency exit plans. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be in, in, in environments, like that's, it's all like a mindset where it's not like hyper vigilance. It's just being more prepared versus paranoid. And that's where I'm trying my best to train 
of the mindset piece of everything with my company, Blue Bearing Solutions, and and uh, just doing what I can, you know, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Did the here stateside, right? Yeah, here mm-hmm. in in the country because people are blind to their situational awareness. They do not, for the life of the like, for whatever reason, I've said this before and I'll say it again: Western North America. We've been tested once with 9-11. We all seen the response to that. We're not tested. We're not a tested country. North America is not a tested uh, set of places where people are kicking their doors in on a regular basis and having to be cautious and aware of everything around them. They're just not. It's not about being paranoid. It's about being smart. It's about understanding the exits, the entry points, and the soft targets. It's not, and people will say to me, well, I'm not military. Why would I know any of that? Why would I care to know any of that? When I go to Mexico, why do I care where I go? The cartel's not going to bother me. When I go to Africa, why do I care? You should goddamn well care because there are people on this face of this earth just because terrorism, I'm doing quotes, is over. Again, quotes. It's not over. It's just in a rebuild phase. It's happening in Africa all over Africa. It's happening in Afghanistan. Now that the Chinese are in, it's just getting highly funded. All of these things are still happening just because governments say that terrorism is over and that the threat is not there. That doesn't mean it's not happening. And if you're a Western person and you're traveling in any of these vulnerable countries and you're staying in any of these locations that are soft targets that can see you moving in and out whenever they want, you damn well better have an exit strategy, just something, anything. Yeah. And that's the the piece we could go on uh, Mm -hmm. like rabbit holes with. I I think the biggest, the biggest thing though, is like taking ownership in your life and, and the fact that the environments that we live in now, even in our our society here in, in North America and, and, and you are the only person that's, you're going to be your savior. If, mm-hmm. And or you can just be uh, a liability in, you know, it's not there's a massive difference between paranoia and just being more prepared. I don't train people that are paranoid. I just don't because I get mm-hmm. to pick and choose who I train. But the big thing is, is. Like. There's been so many different of these these active shooter, active threat things, and they people want an answer. They want an answer. They want a tool. They want a technique. They want this. And I'm like, it starts fucking here mm-hmm. and in individually. And, and the one thing that I look at all these active shooters that we've had since Columbine in our country, and it's, uh, these motherfuckers aren't trained. So no. thank God, because right? if they were, if they were an organized terrorist group, we'd be fucked as a society but they're not. And the fact is, is like, it's not, it's, it only takes one person to change the trajectory of any of these attacks and you, whether you want to pick up and bear arms, that's up to you. But if, but if you're going to do that, I train like people to build their confidence with those tools. Um, but, but to ask themselves a question of why they are carrying a firearm, um, and if they can't if they can't answer it, then I'm like, well, it looks like you and I have reached a point where mm-hmm. we're not going to train together anymore. Because if 
and I'm not saying, and that's when it's firearms related training. But if, if, if it's just like, if I'm speaking with a school administration, I don't expect all of them to, to want or to introduce, there could be no firearms involved. I still go and talk to school administrations and, and to other, other, uh, uh, communities, you know, type things because it, everyone can be like a force multiplier and to, mm -hmm. and, 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 and have these, like, you have to have these types of talks because you can't just pick up a template and say, here's the answer, or this will work for you. And that'll work for everybody. It's very much understanding the environments that you're operating in every day mm -hmm. and, and just tightening up little, little aspects of, of that but you can only do that. There is no training program for active threat response. Like there is a, a mindset and exposure that you, you can create, whether it's talking through, walking through or scenario based, like full blown, like full develop, fully developed auditory visually and, and uh, like tactile, like all these senses mm -hmm. of, of creating the most realistic uh, environments based on, real world experiences that that they've happened and and you expose yourself to those because the next time that you do see something that's similar you, it's for one it's it's two things it's going to you're going to have you're going to be more prepared to learn to have learned what you can actually safeguard in those you're going to be in fight flight or freeze when mm -hmm. this happens which one you do is up to you i don't know but but you can operate in that environment if you know like what to safeguard as far as bandwidth like what you're how to how to separate what's noise and what's most important in those because critical decision making isn't something you can do very well in fight fire freeze but exposure to those environments can help lessen how stimulating any one environment is going to be they're never going to look the exact same right but there's 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 elements to it that i do with my training that will help you and they can be full-blown scenarios like i said where we have like it's full-blown like as realistic as i can create um and then there's just like hey let's walk through and talk through your current policies or sops or or, or uh because a policy is only as good as it's communicated and understood mm -hmm. across a any one entity or thing so a lot of it is like, we have a policy for that. We have this, we have that. I'm like, okay, well, fucking give me that. And then I'm like, talk me through this part. If this happens, then this, these decision matrices and shit. And I'm like, okay, you stop. Now you pick up where they left off. And if it can't be, if it's not common vernacular or common knowledge across a spectrum of people that it could Im impact, then it's just a policy on a wall. And it's good right. for, it's about as good as fucking nothing. So that's where I come in and challenge whether it's law enforcement or school administrations. Cause I am very much focused on, I don't want to see another child taken from us. If we, if, if there's something I can do to help, help with that. What are you um, kind of changing gears into blue bearing a bit when you're talking about these situations that you go into with administrations or law enforcement, and you're having these hard conversations about the realities of school situations and active shooter drills. I mean, you guys, and I say you guys in America, you guys just had a shooting in California this week where over 10 individuals were shot and killed. And a man just jumped on the, on the shooter because he something just came over me. He said, 
But can you imagine if we had even 10% of our population trained for these in these situations? And the argument very often, at least in Canada, is, well, if we have no guns, this stuff doesn't happen. Well, that's not true, right? Because in Canada, a couple months ago, we had two individuals go province to province with a knife, killing over 15 individuals at close range, obviously with a knife, which is a horrific way to go. My point is, you do not need a gun a real gun. You could use an airsoft gun. You could use a knife. You could use a bomb. It does not matter. If somebody wants to inflict damage, they mm -hmm. will find a way to inflict damage. Canada's argument is take the guns. This stuff doesn't happen, which we know is not true because the majority of guns that have been taken off the streets in Canada as of recently have all been black market guns because, and they have not been with a single registered gun owner. They have been people who are bad people who go, well, you take the guns legally, I'll get them another way. It's the same yeah. with the cartel and the drugs, right? You yeah. take the good, we're going to give the bad, it's going to happen. So in saying that, when you are looking at situations where maybe people don't carry guns, can't carry guns, aren't legally allowed to own guns, even though it's our goddamn right, why and what do you say to these people? Because- Frankly, I've gone into schools in the local area and I've had these conversations with schools that are literally built out of glass. Everything is glass, glass, mm -hmm. glass, glass. So everything can be seen. What do you say to these people? How are they supposed to protect these kids? Yeah. Well, it's not just Canada. It's here. It's all over here, too. Um, but you walk into a Texas. OK, you walk into Texas. You kick over a, a, a plant, you're going to find two guns. There's yeah. certain states that are heavily armed, and then there's certain states that are not. But the well, fact of it, the matter is, the other, at the least part you of can it, be. I think there's too many guns in this country. Do you? Um, yeah. Interesting. And it's. Uh, I also think there's too many law enforcement. Oh, okay. Um, I want to pull that apart. Yeah, so... And because it boils down to like, that's a problem that I can't, I can't deal with. Right? I can't right. uh, not deal with, but I can't do something about that. All I can do is train people to be confident, you know, gun, gun owning and carrying citizens, right. And law enforcement to account for every single shot they take, uh, understanding what's in front of at and beyond your target. Uh, and, and a lot of the, whether it's the the people, right? Going back to the the why. Why are they doing this? Why are they picking up a gun and and as a law abiding citizen? Or like, is it is it for show? Is it for like asking yourself what it truly means to protect others, yourself and others? It, it means to take the life of another human being. Like you're not in this to deescalate. Like that's that's not your job. Now law enforcement. I'd say about 80% of them in this country need to be bagging groceries because they're mm -hmm. the wrong motherfuckers and they're doing it for there's, there's two, and I'll just say this broadly, but there's, they're doing it for a paycheck or for a pension or stability, mm -hmm. or they're doing it because they got beat up as a fucking kid mm -hmm. and they want to, they want to like to project power right mm -hmm. onto people. So those are both equally as fucking bad, but you can see where that that it just gets extremely 
that everyone wants to throw, we need more of this, we need more of that. You need the right people and the right tools like and techniques, but it starts with the right people and the right type of training. Um, and they're too, based on retention, because they have to meet all these numbers when they're going through academy, they're not going to talk to them about all the, 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 the brutal honesties and realities of like what it means to protect and serve, like truly. Like, mm -hmm. let's show them some like real footage of like some situations where fresh out of the academy, like where you you think you've made it, you're credentialed now. And and you're just now that's your opportunity to learn how to do your fucking job. Mm -hmm. Like, because your job and I won't ever say that I'm going to teach law enforcement how to do their job because I never was. Um, I don't ever market myself as like someone I'll teach you how to be this guy, that guy and the other. Nope. I will increase your survivability and your lethality. God forbid you have to use lethal force, but you will fucking account for every shot you take. And you will understand like the impacts that, that it has on you to intimately take another human being's life hmm. because that shit you'll live with for the rest of your life. Nobody talks and, about that. Yeah, I do. I do all the time because this isn't a game. And People need to get hit with that because it's something that um, it is truly the definition of, of like, it can make or break you as a, as a human being beyond just understanding like the environments that you're going to be. I don't envy any law enforcement. Like I don't want that job, um, but I want to help. Mm -hmm. And that's the big piece is like, I'm going to train my, Harnett County in my sheriff's office tomorrow, or they're mm -hmm. coming to me to train at the new shoot house. And I'm going to start doing that twice a month for them. And I'm volunteering that time. And Good for uh, you, for, for my community, same with my, my daughter's schools um, here. And uh, I wish I could do that across the country, but it has, and I will, but I have to, I have to monetize, you know, aspects of this business to be able to sustain itself. Um, mm -hmm. and I am working with a bunch of different, a bunch of different LE, uh, agencies, state or national state and local, um, and school administrations. So that, uh, where, where was I going with that? The, uh, the, you, the training in itself. I said the 80, I said the 80% piece of, of like law enforcement across the country. Mm -hmm. 20% of those are the right people. 10% of the 20 are, are the actual warriors and 10% are the ones that are like, will will step up as soon as the warriors like tell them, show them with their actions, like what, what right looks like in impossible situations, right? Where you can't, and that's where, uh, you know, that's, uh, there's so much experience in the borders of this country, but for whatever reason, knowledge, through and understanding I don't understand penal code and that's why I wouldn't have like I wouldn't tell someone I'm going to teach you how to do your job you have to just take elements of the training that I offer and apply that into your life and your profession um but the uh you know the the big piece of that is is it's the right person right and 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 then once you have the right people or or few like if I'm speaking to a group of 50 if I can speak to and truly connect with 10 of them, I have succeeded in what I'm trying to do because they're going to take that and that's going to ripple and manifest and and, and permeate 
into mm-hmm. their environments. And it's, it's just like, when we talk about change, it's like incremental shift, right? And that's mm-hmm. how change happens. And then societally, we, we need a change period. Um, but that takes, uh, that takes a long time for it to actually happen. But that doesn't mean that we can't do something with the next 40 years that we have on this earth, hopefully. Um, and that's what I'm doing with, the, with any of the training. And it doesn't have to be firearms. It can be it, like, that's why the active threat response course I do is called protect your mindset. Mm. It's not an active threat. Like you will, you'll, you will fix, this will fix all your active threat problems. Nope. It's a mindset. <laughs> nope. And it's understanding what being a protector is and what, what a protector and what a provider is. Like a lot right. of people think they're protectors, but they're actually just providers. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's kind of like my way of, and I'm very much focused on, on law enforcement um, because I want to, I want to build a capable, or excuse me, I want to build a, a syndicate of people and companies to leave, leave our society better than we found it. And um, so that is the, you know, the primary mission at Blue Bearing. Well, the primary mission is a selfless one, if I've ever seen one, because you could really run and take and do whatever you've you've had in your past, and you could run with that and write a million books, and you could do X, Y, and Z, but instead you're choosing to take this time, the lessons learned, uh, and apply it to civilian life in a way that helps you transition out, but shows others that you can transition. Are you drinking soda on my goddamn podcast? It's a yeah, bubbly water. Is it? Oh, so it's Michael, a bu- it's a, Buble. It's, it's a bubbly water. Yeah. Okay, good. I was going to give you Park so much shit. We've had the conversation about sugar. No, I know. Nope. There's okay. just water on this table. All right. I will accept it. Moving on. The thing that <laughs> I love though about your mindset is it is so drastically different and so many people who have just transitioned out, that could be your willingness to be accountable for your actions and what what that looks like in a family setting and a civilian setting. That could be your willingness to go and work on yourself with vets, or that could just be your demeanor from always wanting to just be better since you've been young. Either way, all of those things encompass a person that is looking like on the outside, a successful transition out. That to me is an example that needs to be showed on a large scale because transitioning out of the service is one of the most difficult things to do if you are not prepared or you don't know what you're falling into. And it could end up in a very difficult time for you and your family and everyone around you. So I love seeing that. And I love seeing your willingness to say, Hey, look, look, I cried. I've had to sit in these moments. I've had to understand that things are scary. That's a real word I've adopted into my vocabulary. And it's acceptable and okay for a grown-ass man to say, I was scared in a situation because those are feelings and emotions that no one wants to talk about. Nobody wants to acknowledge because of the ego that is within ourselves. We don't need to kill the ego. We need to tell that bitch to take a seat. And then come mm-hmm. forward and acknowledge that we're going through things, we're feeling things and vocalize those things. If only to not only hear yourself say it and acknowledge it, but to help others down that path. And with mm-hmm. Blue Bearing, you're doing that from a, a profession and a work standpoint and utilizing that and volunteering that. But moving forward in your life, you've utilized TBI treatments, you're off of pharmaceutical meds, you've used psychedelics, you're going to start using your integration properly because I'm going to be on you about it. But you have also really 
built a better relationship with your family unit. And before you go, I want to touch on that and your wife, because you cannot do this job successfully without a real true partner beside you. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about her if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, I think there's two things I wanted to cover. So like the like trauma and mental health like period i think is and i use this uh in a tactical kind of metaphor of like if you and i go into a room i go left you go right and some gnarly shit happens in that room and we return to base and then like you tell me you're like hey kyle i don't know how i feel about something in that room could be a tactical thing. It could just be that statement, right? I'm not sure how I feel about that. And and I tell you, well, that was a fucking that was a Tuesday. Like get your shit back, or you know, re mm -hmm. re you know, redo your shit and like get ready to go back out. Like I've missed an opportunity as a leader, uh, as a as a peer, as a human. More importantly, to 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 maybe not. You don't need an intervention every fucking time something comes up. But that's a data point where I could be like, hmm. And and the the big takeaway that I've learned with any of this is it's about perspective. And I use the room as a as a way to break this down because I can't, from that person's point of view, I can't be where his feet are, his shoes. And maybe he saw something, but if you peel back perspective to his perspective, how well they slept the night before, how much they prepared their mind, body, and spirit. Um, and then their journey in life up to that moment in time. Like all I can do is just say, all right, that's a data point where they've now said something. And if I were to say it's a Tuesday, get your shit back on, I have shut that person down potentially from ever wanting to say something again, because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not like institutionally or culturally accepted to, to bring it up. Um, and it doesn't have to, on a surface, it doesn't have to be like, oh my God, I'm fucking losing my mind. They, and more than likely it won't, they'll just lose their fucking minds. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll probably be away from work because we're, we do a really good job of like ripping apart the tactical lessons learned and what you did wrong. And, and uh, but those are all in the process of all of those there, the, if you can just, take your head out of your sights or your optic and throw your vision out there about what's happening around you. Because if people, if these are the people that you're going on to targets with or, or training with or living with, they're worth, they're worth you investing that energy into. Mm -hmm. And you could pick this up and place it onto any, any model, personal life, home life, work life. It doesn't matter. It is about perspective. And if that person's, in, if they're worth you investing in, then, then uh, that's an opportunity that I feel like we've done a very poor job in the military, especially of seeing those opportunities for what they were. But, and that's where I think like it, it you cannot process any of this alone. Like you have to share it with another human being and with your higher power. Um, and I will say that the, behind any one of us that have led careers like I have that are successful, a quote unquote, air quote, successful, mm -hmm. like, cause you could measure success in a million ways, but like success to me is, is like, 
like, am I a good person? Am, am I a good human? Am I a good husband? Am I a good father? Uh, and then contributing member to my society. And that's how I measure success. And, and the ones that are successful beyond what we used to do are there is an, a stronger woman or significant other beside us. Like, bottom line. And I believe that to be true. And in using my case, like Erica and and my children are the reason I have been uh, successful and the, and the reason I'm still on this earth. Um, because at my lowest in 2016, 17, 18, the only thing that kept me from taking my own life is I love them more than I knew I love myself. So I would right. never, I would never have. And I, I know hopelessness is a feeling that I felt for periods of my life. And that's, there is no line there between like what happens next or not. I know what happens ne next. It's not really next though. It, it could have been me. Um, but I, the way it manifested in my life was I wanted someone to kill me. Mm -hmm. So my behavior outside of work or continuing to stay at work, like I needed to die on the battlefield or I needed to die like wanting and just putting myself in the, just the most ridiculous of situations. And because I didn't know how to love myself and, you know, but I do now, and that is something that I'm working on every day, but I couldn't have ever gotten there if it wasn't for Erica and my children. Um, and that's not me putting that onto them because I may have done that at periods where I'm like, Oh, I'm leaning on them to survive, to thrive. Um, it's just really like giving them, giving, honoring them and, and then never losing sight of that, like mm -hmm. in my life moving forward, because like, I wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for them. Right. And it, any of this being like I measure success off of, right. Like being a good person, they, they that's kept that in, with my relationship with God, like that's kept, it's keeping me in the light on this path with the bearing that I've been shown. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I love the fact that you sent me that. Oh, your buddy check bracelet. And I'm going to put it on for the show. Do you know and how to I'm do gonna, it? Never take it off. Zip I don't know. lock. I'm pretty, I'm pretty smart lock. though. Are you? I'm going to watch you do it and see how smart you are. Oh, shit, you got it. Do you know how many people I've had to open those for? Now pull really hard. Really hard. Use those muscles. You got them. I believe in you. There you go. Yeah. Do you Look at Kyle. He's just going to snap it in half. Yeah, it gets uh -oh. on you. No, no. Okay. Don't, don't you worry. Listen, I can get it on bigger boys than you. We'll be all right. I promise. All the way. Keep it going. It's, go it's going. It's going. It's going. Now take. I'm going to take that ball, put it in your mouth. And pull real tight. <laughs> oh, for those that are listening, you guys missed out. Oh, there it is. Oh, Kyle, that makes my heart happy. Right. Would your Would your wife think of her necklace? She loves it. Does Thank she? Yeah. Oh, you're so welcome. Listen, it's not about. It's not about. That's that's the thing about what I do. God, I just want my people to know that I care. I want them to know that other people are out there. That hopelessness feeling you were just talking about. That feeling of, I don't know, I can't see the past the end of the day. I can't see, I can't see past the hour. That's a real thing, man. 
That's a mm -hmm. super real thing. Every level of the profession, every level of law enforcement, every level of military, whatever you want to call it, first responders, there's moments in our life, whether we like it or not, that stick with us. And that moment of hopelessness, when it shows up, I just don't want people to feel like they're ever alone again. And that's our way of doing it. That thing on your wrist, it's silly, it's small, it's something. But it just knows when you have it, you know that you can call. And that's all that I've ever wanted. It's people to never feel alone again. I don't want people to feel the way I did. I don't want the, anybody to feel the way a lot of our community feels. And that's our mission. That right there, yeah. that, that silly little bracelet right there, that buddy check makes all the difference to a lot of people. No, I think I uh, I think it's extremely admirable and I, I support, support that 100%. I think, you know, it, the big the big thing is is like people are like oh well how do we fix this problem of of veteran suicide and this and that I'm like or law enforcement and I'm like you don't fix it for one you you just keep that the other line open right where and and paying attention to like if it walks like a duck talks like a duck it might just be a fucking duck yeah and and there's performance indications that you can you can build into your own like uh training or 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 like work environment to where like you can you can pattern analysis and develop you know over time you know paying attention to the human aspects and compassion to lead is to truly is be to be able to communicate and to have compassion to others and you can't you can't communicate without having truly communicate without having compassion okay. and understanding how people learn you know, individually and, um, and then having ways to hold each other accountable. And in our personal lives, I think it's like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to receive certain messages through my life, but man, do I not reflect on those as being so profound now and the people that did that, that, that presented them to me. So that to me, well, the answer is this, like, I'm just going to say it early and often and using myself and as an example, being vulnerable and humble. And, and that's how I save lives. Like where I'm able to talk about, you know, the fear, the, the, uh, the unraveling, you know, and how, and, and using myself with humility, like using that as an example to hold myself accountable, but to help others say, Hey man, like, it's okay if you're not okay. It's just don't stay not okay for periods of time. You just, you have others that can help you where things don't make sense. Like you need to be able to share that with, with someone else. And like I said, with your higher power, and that's how you truly, you're not alone because I've, I've felt absolutely alone amongst the crowd over periods of my life. And I was never alone, but I couldn't see that for what it was. And for me, like, if something resonates with one person that I've said that maybe helps alter their path of taking their own life, then I've succeeded on my new mission right. from God, from God. And there's no way to quantify it. So I'm just going to say it and do it and continue to do it. And when, and some people aren't ready to receive those messages, but guess what? I still say it. And if they'll come back around and I'll be here on the other side, you know? If anything, I think the thing that I, I appreciate the most out of this conversation is that part right there. The reason I say that is for almost eight years now, I have been screaming at the top of my lungs about veteran suicide 
before we hit 44, before we were hitting 22. And my one response to when people would say, how is this product going to help our community? It's very simple. No one wants to talk. No one wants to pick up the phone. So if it's on you permanently and you can't take it off or you choose not to take it off, you know, it's a small thing. I did this on, I had this on a podcast this week, I had this conversation with Tiffany Hart and it was very simple. I said, I am coming into the American community from an outsider's perspective. Remember how you just had said, I can't stand in that guy's shoes in that room and see that perspective. I'm watching your community. I say your America's community of veterans and going, you have almost 50,000 active nonprofits for veterans in America to date. 50,000. All that needs to be done in order to fix the suicide crisis is for those people to start connecting with one another. You have these beautiful dots of people in every state that don't even know each other exist. You need to start connecting just like the brain does when it does psychedelics. Start connecting the dots. Let the synapses start firing. If you guys all really just utilize the potential of these organizations and have them all talking, and I've been saying this for years, I don't know if there needs to be an event in one location, one time a year, where all the heads of these massive organizations and egos get stripped away and we all sit down together and go, how are we going to do it? How? Because you're there. The tools are there. The groundwork is there. The communication needs to start. That's how you do it. Keep the lines yeah. open. Like you said, never shut the door. The door's never shut. And if you can take time and just talk to two extra people a day, just two or even one, and you let that person or those two people know, you can call. And if you can't get a hold of me, here's who you can call. But they need to know the resources are available. They're there. We just need to start all talking. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And it, it but it it starts with uh individuals and then those individuals connect mm -hmm. the bigger dots. And then before you know it, we have a a syndicate or a a, a network of people and companies and nonprofits that can leave it better than mm -hmm. we found it. And that yep. is exactly what I'm doing, whether it's yep. preparedness, firearms, tactical training, active threat response, or my mental health mindset, uh, and, and like awareness, you know, piece that it's all happening at the same time for me. Mm -hmm. Like I will do things that are specific for one or the other, but they're all interconnected. Right. Like when you experience them with me and I just wish that there was more people out there doing that. Because it's like, why would I hang on to this experience that I've been given or shown, excuse me, or put into these environments? The experience is that I've used the the things I've been shown. No one can take away from me. They're, they're mine. But but we have the most, we have a generation of the most capable warriors in, that we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And we're losing them, you know, in the masses to, to suicide. And whether it's LE or Mill or first responders period. Um, and that's the part where it's on people like me and others that have the resume, right. Mm -hmm. to, to then hit people with some fucking the hard truths of everything. And, um, I'm not trying to build a monopoly on any of this. I, I want us to leave this place better than we found it. Cause we don't have that much time left, you know, on this earth. 
no, right, we individually. Don't. So, but I think it just, yeah, I think we're, we're doing it and it's just, uh, let's just keep doing it. Community is key. My friend community is key and you are a part of my community. And I've been so grateful to get to know you over the past little while. And thanks again to, to Mark Turner at Overwatch Foundation and all the work that you're doing with them to really, you know, selflessly go and change lives, help, help people be prepared, hopefully save their own lives, but also help pull individuals out of situations that they should never have had to be in in the first place. And I am grateful for not only your friendship, but your time and your willingness to be, you know, the guy with the resume, but the vulnerable guy, the guy that's willing to talk about the stuff that's inside, not just the raw, raw gunning and running and gunning. And I will always I will always hold you to that level of standard. Now that I am in your life, I will make sure that you are doing the things because you are a part of my community. You are somebody that I see moving forward that's going to continue to change lives. And hopefully not only this episode, but every other episode you do because you will be back on, but every other thing that you touch, whether it's your family, whether it's those around you, whether it's those that you're training, I hope that you do see that, that you are a value add to the society. And thank you for not being a liability, but being an asset. No, thank you. And uh, I appreciate you saying all that. And I, I, uh, I believe that that uh, we we can do a lot together. So, yes, sir, we sure keep, can. Let's just keep let's just keep doing it. We will. Where can everyone find you? Anything about Blueberry? If they want to train with you, or if they want to contact you and work with you in some other capacity, where do we find you? Yeah, the best way to do that is going to be through BlueberrySolutions.com, uh, and on the on the homepage, there is an inquiry for services, and there's a you know, a form that you fill out, whether it's training, mindset, speaking, all the things, those drop downs, that's going to open the, that's, that opens the communication line up uh, mm -hmm. to, for us to be able to prioritize um, everything. And then where do they find you on social? You do have a great, you are a great follow on social. I will say, I love watching the videos, the training that you do. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so uh, the user, the username for the company is blue underscore bearing on on instagram and and then um the my personal business page is kyle morgan actual uh on on social media as well and then i'm i'm on youtube and patreon under blue bearing solutions um as well but all the things are there uh if you go to the website you can see all those things as well well, I appreciate you so much. We'll put everything in the show notes. Everyone else, that's been Kyle Morgan. We'll see you all next week.